So this weekend we are turning our attention to the book of First Samuel chapter 8. Uh, if you've been with us this summer, then you know we have been walking through some of the stories of the Old Testament. Our series is called True Story. So I do invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8 if you've got a Bible in front of you or a Bible on one of your devices. And while you're doing that, I've got one quick announcement. Next Sunday, immediately following the 1030 worship gathering, is our annual member meeting. If you are an official member of Northbrook Church, uh, one of the commitments you make is to be a part of that meeting. Uh, We do discuss the budget, which we have to vote on, which we need quorum to vote. Uh, So please be in attendance for that. I'm also going to share some thoughts for the coming year. Uh, I'm going to share some thoughts about our church in the future. And uh, we're going to feed you lunch, which is always good. And we will have a Zoom option if you are out of town. Now, if you are not a member, you're more than welcome to attend. Just can't vote per Wisconsin statute, but you can be in attendance. And the Zoom option will only be available to members uh, because we have to keep track of who's actually allowed to vote via the Internet. So please join us next Sunday immediately following the 1030 worship gathering. In the year 1862, the poet Emily Dickinson wrote, The heart wants what the heart wants. One of the items that I love to eat are craft cheese singles. You know, the kind that come in the individually wrapped cellophane. I love I put those on everything. I melt those on nachos, burgers, hot dogs, chicken, steak, ice cream, everything. I, I don't put it on ice cream, although I should try it. Don't mock it to you, try it. I, I love it. Now, my son, uh, Ryan, who is actually a fairly good cook, gets offended when I put that on anything that he creates. So much so that if he makes something for me and I melt craft cheese on it, he takes a picture of it and sends it to one of my friends and says, can you please talk to my father? <laughs> to which I reply, the heart wants what the heart wants. Oh, that, that phrase is used to describe some of those inexplicable things in us. The heart wants what the heart wants. Sometimes we even encourage each other by saying, you know, you just need to follow your heart, which is okay advice sometimes. The scriptures also remind us that the heart can be deceptive above all things. Of course, I'm not talking about the organ beating in your chest. I'm talking about your desires and your emotions. Because there are some things my heart wants that my heart shouldn't want. And I bet you if you're honest, there are things your heart, things your heart wants that your heart shouldn't want because it only leads to pain and despair and discouragement. Sometimes we, we look around at our neighbors, our friends, maybe the person sitting next to you, and you want what they have, or you want the kind of life that they have. You, you say, I want to be like like them. I want to be like, I kind of want to just be like everybody else. Today in our story, in the book of First Samuel chapter 8, the nation of Israel is going to find itself in a challenging situation and they find themselves there because they have this desire to be like everyone else. 
Today's story is a story of Israel and a man named Samuel. We were introduced to Samuel last weekend. If you were here, you know that Samuel was a boy, about 12 years old, living in the temple. He was serving as a priest when God called him. And Samuel went from, from being a young boy to a prophet in just a moment, in just one moment. Now when we come to chapter 8, Samuel is not only a prophet, but he's also a judge. He's, he's older, and he's leading the people of Israel. So we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders, as judges. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abiah, or Abijah, depending on how you pronounce it. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So what we notice here is that these men that are supposed to be leading Israel are men of perversion of justice and exploiters of power. See, in this portion of the Bible, we are introduced to some of the politics of ancient Israel. Israel, at the time of this story, was led under a theocracy, which meant that God was their king. And God's ways, well, God's ways were their ways, which was very different from the surrounding nations. The surrounding nations were led by a monarchy. They were led by a king who often exploited people for his own personal, personal gain. Well, Samuel is considered a judge. And while God is the king of Israel, he appoints judges to lead the people. So, so Samuel is going to pass down his role as judge to his two sons. The problem is, however, they're corrupt. And everyone notices it. And because they know they're corrupt, the nation of Israel looks at Samuel's two sons with suspicion. Which is really not that far off from today. I mean, every evening when I read my news feed, it seems like there is an article about another leader who's become corrupt. And as a result, we look at leadership with suspicion. Moving to verse 4 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. So the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. What's beginning to happen in this story is that God's people, the nation of Israel, are replacing their faith in God with fear. So the elders come to Samuel and they say, this isn't working, it's time for a change, and there's two reasons that it's time for a change. The first reason is, Samuel, is you're old. You ever been told you're old? It's really not a compliment when someone says that to you. I would advise, if I could go back in time, the, the, the leaders of Israel, to not, to not start with that. Samuel, you're old. The last time I took one of my children to the emergency room to be treated, a nurse walked in and did what nurses do. And when the nurse walked out, I said to my kid, wow, I mean, are nurses getting younger? That girl looked like she was 12 years old. And my child said to me, no, dad, they're not getting younger. You're just getting old. And it wasn't a compliment. We, we don't want to be told that. 
Samuel, the first problem is you're old, and the second problem is your succession plan is bad. Your succession plan is bad because your children are corrupt. And oh, by the way, the law doesn't even give you the right to pass this down to your children. Now, in Israel, the priesthood was the only role that was hereditary. Judges were appointed. So Samuel didn't even have the authority to hand the judgeship down to his sons. And so these elders say, Samuel, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. This is what our heart desires. And the heart wants what the heart wants. Now, asking for a king was not necessarily the problem. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is one of the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Pentateuch, attributed to Moses, Moses anticipates in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that a day would come when Israel would desire a king. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was the reason. The reason they wanted the king was the problem because they had replaced their faith and trust in God with fear. Fear in particular over potential enemies. At the time, Israel did not even have a real threat. There was nobody that was knocking on their door to take them over, but they were afraid of what what might happen. So they said, Samuel, we want to be like everybody else. We're kind of done trusting in you. We're kind of done trusting in God. Give us a king to rule over us. Now, up until this point, everything that God had done for his people was through faith and miraculous. He got them out of Egypt through miracles. When they found themselves standing at the Red Sea with the Egyptian army behind them, it was through faith, it was through divine guidance that they were led through the Red Sea. God provided manna for them from heaven as they lived in the desert, water from a rock. And just one chapter back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, God miraculously delivers his people from the hands of the Philistine. And yet they say, no, our heart wants something different. Verse 6. But they said, give us a king. Give us a king to lead us. And this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots and some will be assigned to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. 
When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before God, and the Lord answered them, listen to them and give them a king. Oh, there was this desire to be just like everyone else. And so God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as their king. What they're doing is they're seeking worldly solutions rather than divine guidance. Now, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, were called to be holy. I mean, the word holy means to be set apart, to be separate. It means to be different. And yet their desire was to be like everyone else. Oh, well, we really can't sit and judge them because how often have I, have we wanted to be like everyone else? When I was in high school, there was a group of students in my high school that were known as the popular kids. Oh, ever since there's been high school, there's been the popular kids. Now, I don't know who decides who the popular kids are. I don't know if there's a council or a commission or something that happens that decides who they are. But the popular kids are the very ones that everyone else wants to be like. Now, I went to high school in the 90s, in the late 80s, early 90s, and so we wanted to be like the popular kids, and so we listened to the music that the popular kids listened to. And at that time, it was R.E.M. and Echo and the Bunnymen, Depeche Mode, The Cure. We dressed like the popular kids dressed, and we wanted to be invited to the parties that the popular kids were invited to. But let me let you in on a little secret. I know it's going to be hard to believe, but I was not one of the popular kids. Oh, and I might say, I don't want to be like that, but oh, the heart wants what the heart, the heart wants. The human desire to be like everyone else. I mean, that was Israel's problem, the desire to be like everyone else, not trusting in God as their king. And so God, in his mercy, gives us, as his creation, agency. He he gives us free will. And so God says to Samuel, listen to the people and give them exactly what they want. I'll warn them what will happen if they get what they want, but give them what they want. And what we find is that sometimes God's greatest judgment on us is giving us exactly what we want. Because what the Old Testament reminds us of is that these kings that Israel so desperately wanted were the very people who exploited them, who did horrible things, were abusive, And Israel went back into slavery, kind of like when they were in Egypt. Oh, but we don't live in the Old Testament of of Israel. We don't live in the kingdom of Israel. We, We live in a new time, and the New Testament itself begins with a new king and a new kingdom. And yet, though we're called to live in this new kingdom as followers of Christ— We kind of do the same thing, if we're honest. We look for worldly solutions rather than divine guidance. 
I mean, for instance, we are about to once again enter into another election cycle. Aren't you excited? All the commercials, I can't wait. I, lo- I record the commercials and watch them. They're amazing. And we will say things like, if our person gets in, and if this law is passed, then everything's going to be okay. It's all going to be different. And to that I say, will it? Will it really? Because I've been living a while now, and it's never really been all that different. And we replace our faith with fear. So maybe we should reverse it and move from fear to faith, or said another way, from fear to trust in a different king of a different kingdom. In the Gospel of John chapter 15, Jesus said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, the apostle Paul writes, but we, as followers of Christ, we're citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak and mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under control. And because, because we're citizens of this kingdom of heaven that Jesus ushers in, I believe the Christian church has a series of callings. The first of which is the call to be different. See, when we move from the Old Testament to Jesus and the New Testament, we're introduced to a different kind of kingdom. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins to preach his very first sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The word repent means to change your mind and be different, to to go in a different direction. The writer of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, says this, therefore, come out from them and be separate, be different, says the Lord. Touch no one clean thing and I will receive you. Now, the word different doesn't mean better. It doesn't mean we're better than everybody else. No, no, no. It's a call to live differently, which is exactly what the Christian church has done historically since its inception. If you look back in history, if you read church history, then what you discover is the first century church that existed within the Roman Empire, which was a vile place. The early church was noticed because the early church was different. And because they were different, people started to whisper and talk, what is it about those, those Christians? And so much so that, that the Holy Spirit empowered the work of the early church because of its distinctiveness that it changed the whole world. It's part of why we're sitting here together. Well, there were a few distinctives that stood out. If, regardless of the account of church history that you read, you, you typically find these, these five distinctives that, that made up the early church. And the first one was the distinctive of diversity. Because see, in, in the very first church, it was the first time that Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, men and women, slave and free, came together to worship as one. Because see, in the Roman Empire, all these groups were separated by class. The rich didn't mingle with the poor. Women didn't worship with men. Jews certainly didn't get together with Gentiles. But in this new church, this new expression of the kingdom, 
There was this diversity in which people came together as one. They were also noticed because of their care for the poor, their radical care for the poor. So much so that some of the Roman emperors are recorded speaking to the pagan priests, saying things like, look at those Christians, look how they care for the poor. Maybe we should be more like them. This early church, they had a very strong sexual ethic, which was very different from the promiscuous society of the Roman Empire. These early Christians, they were committed to sexuality within the bounds of marriage when a man and a woman come together and and make this commitment, this sacred vow to one another. And they were committed to living within this sexual ethic and not not dishonoring their bodies with all kinds of things, not engaging in the, the temple orgies of the pagan deities, but no, 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 they were, they were committed to honoring God with their body. And they were committed to the sanctity of life, both the born and the unborn. Because see, in the Roman Empire, it was completely legal to take a child you did not want and literally throw them in the garbage. And it was the Christians who would go to the garbage dumps, you can read about it in history, and take these children as their own and raise them because they believed that every human being was created in the image and likeness of God. And all these Christians, they did something unfathomable. They forgave and even loved their enemies, which would have been preposterous in the Roman Empire. Forgiveness was seen as weak and love your enemy. Who would do that? Well, those that were following Christ, they were the ones that did that because they were called to be different. That early church, they were also called to be thoughtful. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the apostle Paul writing, he says, "Don't, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but be a new and different person with a fresh newness in all you do and think. Then you will learn from your own experience how his ways will really satisfy you. The challenge that Israel found itself in when they asked for a king is they were being reactive, not thoughtful. And oh, don't we? We live in a reactive culture. Man, are we reactive at everything. And yet our our calling is, as followers of Christ, is the call to be thoughtful, to have a fresh newness in everything that we do and we think. Because see, thoughtful people, thoughtful people begin by having an honest assessment of themselves. Oh, it's so easy to point the finger at somebody else, but those of us that choose to be thoughtful, we we look at ourselves first. I read the story of an evangelist who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, whose name was named Evangelist Gypsy Smith. He was called Gypsy Smith because he was born into a family of, of gypsies, and he traveled the country and really the world holding revival meetings and and because of his preaching God was doing some pretty profound things in in the world people were coming to Christ and the church was being revived through his ministry and because he was so successful he would be asked what what's the secret what's the secret to seeing revival happen in our town And in our church, what's the secret to seeing God move? And so Gypsy Smith would say, well, here's what you do. You take a piece of chalk and draw a circle 
on the ground around yourself. Stand in that circle and pray, God, would you revive and transform everything standing in this circle? Because when I'm revived and when I'm transformed, it's contagious. See, thoughtful people have an honest assessment of self and thoughtful people are prophetic rather than partisan. I mean, it's really easy to to, to draw lines, right? To draw party lines, which is really kind of hard to do if we live within the ethic of the early church because if you think about this, if you could look at the first two distinctives of the early church, diversity and care for the poor, there is, there's a political side that would get excited about that, about diversity and care for the poor. And when you think about the next two, a strong sexual ethic and the sanctity of life, there's another side that gets real excited about that. And number five, forgiveness and love of any beast. Nobody gets excited about that because that's just hard, right? But no, a prophetic voice looks at the whole message of the gospel. And instead of being reactive in our culture, speaks with thoughtfulness. The word of God, which is unchanging, which is prophetic in its very nature. Thoughtful people are, are gracious, not, not gloating. And thoughtful people are open and curious, open to the possibility that there are some things that I may have gotten wrong. Open to the possibility that I might not always be right. I may have missed it. See, the early church was different. They were thoughtful and they were submissive. Oh, but we hate that word, submissive. But we all submit to something, don't we? I mean, we do if we're honest. The early church is called to submit to a king. The king. We submit ourselves to Christ. The, the apostle Paul writes that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. J- Jesus, as he knelt in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, not my will, but your be- will be done. I mean, that's a prayer of submission. Job in the Old Testament writes, submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. But what happens when we don't? Because we don't have to. Again, God gives us agency. We can do whatever we want. We have the gift of free will. All of us. And God gives us agency to make our own choices. But when we turn to the Apostle Paul writing in the book of Romans chapter 1, which is, which is his theological opus. He talks about creation. He talks about having a deep moral compass. He, he addresses that, that statement, we want to be like everyone else. The heart wants what the heart wants. We just want to be like everyone else. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, well, you can live that way. And so God gives them over to a depraved mind. Oh, I don't want to live like that. Yeah, Mike, but there's all these, who, who says I've got to live this way? Who says... Well, the king says. It's the king. And so, so maybe the, the best thing we can do this week is to get our own piece of chalk. Draw a circle around ourselves. Say, God, revive me. I, I want to be different. 
I want to be thoughtful. And I want to submit myself to the king. Or we can do it our own way, which, which I've tried. And life outside God's kingdom has led me to nothing but anxiety, depression, brokenness, despair, and disappointment. I'm not suggesting that life in God's kingdom is perfect because I certainly struggle just like everyone else. But oh, within God's kingdom, there is redemption. And there is the potential for peace and joy that is unexplainable because of God, our Father. And so, Lord Jesus, I this morning declare that you are my king and I submit to you. Oh, my heart sometimes wants what my heart wants. (laughs) But God, I, I want to be different. And I want you to take that difference and empower it with your Holy Spirit and help me to make a difference in our world. May I be a loving, compassionate representative of a king who died for the sins of the world, who invites us into this glorious relationship and citizenship in heaven. Help me to be thoughtful. Help me to be submissive. Amen.